This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on Martin Luther King Jr.'s early life, taught by Professor Claiborne Carson of Stanford University. The class took place at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, where King followed in his father's footsteps as a pastor. Who is Martin Luther King? When we look at Martin Luther King, there's one side of him that is a famous individual. Uh, he is the 1964 winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He's the person who um, really was the most influential leader of a great social movement. Uh, he is the only American who is honored with a national holiday in his name. So there is that uniqueness that you know, practically everybody in the world knows the name Martin Luther King. But the question is that I'd like to address right in this setting is who really was Martin Luther King? Because one of the advantages of using a setting like this is that we can really practice history the way it should be. It shouldn't be about names and dates that you remember. It should be about the study of the things that survived from the past. That's why a site, a historical site, is so important. That's why the King Papers Project, when when Coretta Scott King named me to edit Martin Luther King's paper, she understood that in the long run, what would survive were the papers that Martin Luther King produced during his lifetime. So all of that is part of what I would call the legacy of Martin Luther King. And, and if we want to get close to who he really was, that's the best window that we have into the past. So Martin Luther King produced a lot of papers. <laughs> One of the things that has kept me busy um, for the last 30 years is bringing together hundreds of thousands of documents. As any great person, you have so many materials uh, to work with. And all of these are important windows, and that's, that's why I feel that my life is well served by doing this, is that it provides what, we will, what will be the lasting memory of Martin Luther King. But when we look at who he really was, we have to kind of go back beyond the myth. We have to go back beyond the kind of person who is honored by the national holiday, because the importance of coming to a site like this is that you begin to see evidence from Michael King, the person who existed before Martin Luther King, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. That was the person who was born just up the street, a block up the street at 501 Auburn Avenue. And that was the person that I hope as you saw that birth home, you kind of had in your mind what kind of uh, influence would that historical building have on the making of Martin Luther King. And fortunately, we not only have the birth home, but we have a few documents, not as many as 
when he becomes famous, you know, thousands and thousands of doctor, uh, letters that we have, documents that people who wrote to him, all of those things are part of the papers of Martin Luther King. But when we look at when he was growing up, his formative years, we don't have a lot to work with. Basically, what we have are a few documents and a lot of memories. Some of the memories are not as reliable as the other memories. But just think of a document that most of you have. It's called your birth certificate. We have that for Martin Luther King. And it tells us some important things about him. It tells that he was born on January 15, 1929. We know that it, the birth took place in that second floor bedroom in that home. We know something about the other names that are on that birth certificate. Who would be on that? The father and the mother. So we know that at that time, the person who becomes Martin Luther King Sr., at that time he's Mike King, he also is living in that house. And Alberta King is living there. But something else that you begin to understand as you look at the other major document from that period, which is the autobiography of Martin Luther King, which is a document that he writes when he is at Crozier Theological Seminary, he writes his own autobiographical sketch. It's only 14 pages. He does it as an assignment for a class. And we can learn a number of things about him from that, that document. And the third document that is very important is the memoir of Daddy King. Because that kind of provides a lot of life to it. It's probably, in historical terms, historians kind of refer to that as more it's uh, still a primary document because he was a witness, but it's long after the fact, so it becomes less um, valuable in some ways, but also it's personal, so it's valuable in other ways. So let's just look at these, these documents. One of the things that it, we find is, how was he born? Um, one of the things that the, the birth certificate indicates is that there was a midwife and a doctor. And the doctor also lived on Auburn Avenue. So what does that tell us about Martin Luther King? That this neighborhood was diverse. A doctor could live on this neighborhood, but there was also working class people living on this neighborhood, in this neighborhood. But also the fact that there was a midwife at the birth, which indicates that we're still uh, his family was somewhat privileged. At least there was a doctor also attending. But we can see from that that Martin Luther King's early upbringing was kind of a mixture of the, um, I guess what I would call the striving for middle class status and the people who were predominant in this neighborhood, that is, working-class families. So we can also see from this, this document that at that time, his father is a preacher. Where? Right here, 
uh, we can see that there's another person in this household. And who is that? That is, um, at that time of his birth, you have both of the grandparents who are still alive. And his grandfather is also the minister of Ebenezer Church. So a lot of these things that we can find by looking at both the birth certificate, looking at the autobiography of religious development, looking at Daddy King, we can see that, that this was, these were the forces that shaped him. Growing up in this home, um, a middle-class Victorian home, two-story, six bedrooms, that was unusual. Gave him a certain amount of privilege. Uh, we can also see that he's connected to the past. What does he say in the autobiography? He refers to his saintly grandmother who told him stories about the time before going back to slavery. So he grows up with a great attachment. Why? Because his grandmother sees him as uh, his, her favorite grandson. That's probably because he's the oldest, the one who comes along first. She tells him all these stories. That's part of what he gets. But the great, great influence on his life is going to be his father. What happens to his grandfather? He dies before Martin Luther King gets to know him. Dies when he's only about two years old. And who replaces him at, here at Ebenezer? His father. How does that happen? Well, in Daddy King's memoir, we can tell a little bit about that story. The fact that his mother-in-law is the widow of the person who almost founded this church gave him a great advantage. But actually at the time, Michael King, the Reverend Michael King, was skeptical about becoming the minister of Ebenezer. Why would that be? Well, part of it was he wanted to be, have his own church. And if he had come to this church, would he have gotten the position just because he's the son-in-law or because this was something he'd earned on his own? So he was somewhat skeptical about that. Also, from his point of view, this was something that he would always be in the shadow of his father-in-law. So it took a while before he makes that decision to, to come and be pastor here. What happens after that? Well, Reverend Williams was a very successful person in his own time. When Martin comes to Atlanta in the years after World War I, he comes from very humble background. His father had been a sharecropper. He sees rural poverty, grows up in, in this uh, situation of trying to make it in the rural south, not that far from Atlanta. He's the type of person who is very ambitious, however. And that's what leads him into the ministry. He wants to have a better life than simply um, plowing the fields. So he teaches himself the rudiments of preaching. 
He only has about what we would call a third grade education at that, at that point. Barely literate, but he learns how to, enough to read Bible verses, memorizes lots of them, decides in the years after World War I, coming to Atlanta, he's, his sister, Woody, is a boarder. The, the bedroom closest to the street was the place where they put boarders. She's living there. So he comes to visit her, and who does he see on the porch? Alberta, the daughter of Reverend Williams. And he decides, almost from the first time he sees her, she's going to be my wife. He also decides, I'm going to aspire to be a minister like Reverend Williams. So he comes there, and he knows that a half-literate, itinerant preacher who just arrived in Atlanta is not going to marry the daughter of a successful preacher. This is despite the fact that Reverend Williams comes from almost identical background, but he had come 20 years earlier. By the time uh, Reverend King comes, he's already successful. So he sees this woman sitting on the porch, the porch that you just saw, and he decides, someday she's going to marry me. But I know that I have to get educated first. I have to go. He goes to grammar school. Studies, finally gets out of grammar school, and then decides, now I need to go to Morehouse College. Well, the jump from grammar school to Morehouse College is a little bit of a jump, but he goes, and the president is John Hope. And with a little bit of encouragement, because uh, Reverend Williams, he saw what was happening, saw that this guy had the same kind of drive and ambition that he had had as a young man, so he puts in a good word with President Hope. Now, if they had had SAT scores during that time, he would never have gotten in. But fortunately, he could say, this person, he doesn't have very much of an education, but he will work as hard as he can to get through. So at the time when Martin Luther King moves into the Williams home, it's because he's a student. He gets married in the mid-1920s to Alberta after a long courtship. It takes about five years before they finally get married. But he, fi- he decides he's going to go and get into Morehouse. He gets in, um, kind of on probation, you know, that he, he is going to work really hard. So his three children, are all, or the first two children, Christine is born in 1927. He's just, he's still an undergraduate at Morehouse. Martin Michael Jr., this is not Martin yet, Michael Jr. is born in 1929. He's still finishing up. And even when A.D. Williams is born in 1931, 1930, he's, he's also finishing up his ministerial studies at Morehouse. So all of this is taking place as he's trying to gain his own stature. And once Reverend Williams dies in 1931, and he becomes the 
preacher, the pastor of this church, what we see is that he has this drive. He wants to not only achieve what Reverend Williams has achieved, but he wants to achieve even more. He wants to go out and create his own legacy. And he comes to the ministry during the Depression at a time when it's very difficult for, to bring in new members, especially some members who could provide some donations uh, to help the church along. So he brings the church through the 30s by providing services uh, to, to the people, uh, food, help with housing. The church became a social service agency as well as a place for religious guidance, the kinds of things that we would later refer to as the social gospel. So this is the environment that Martin grows up in. But again, at that point, he's still Michael King. How does he become Martin King? Well, that happens as part of that drive by his father to achieve respectability. And he changes his name. Now, he later explains that he changes his name because he had, his father had had a brother named um, Martin, another brother named Luther. But he understood the symbolism of Martin Luther. He had just been to Germany Berlin in 1934 for the World Congress of Baptists. This was the first time, it's a hundred years after the founding of modern baptism as a, as a religious denomination, and they have a world conference. And here is Reverend King, one of perhaps a dozen black ministers who make it all the way to Berlin in 1934 to attend this wonderful meeting. And he comes back and by that time, this is a symbol of how he has achieved. He makes this decision, I'm going to change my name. And of course, that changes his son because he's a junior. So now they become the Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I'm, I'm giving you this background because I think that this helps to explain why these, this place is so important, why the birth home a block up the street is such an important place. This is where literally Martin Luther King Jr. achieves his identity. This is the place where he has his early experiences, and this is the important thing that comes through in that wonderful document, The Autobiography of Religious Development. That is something that he uh, writes during his uh, first year at Crozier Theological Seminary. He writes this 14-page handwritten paper, and uh, it, I would love to show you it uh, just to see the, the way in which he kind of sketches out his life. He says that I was born on, in 1929 and on the eve of the Great Depression, which was spread its disastrous arms throughout the nation, and that's how he comes to his anti-capitalist view of, of the world. That's all in the first paragraph. I mean, have you ever read a document that just reveals so much more uh, than that, uh, you know, just from its beginning? 
And those of you in this class understand that beginning because it's the beginning of the autobiography. Because it, it seemed like that was the perfect place to begin Martin Luther King's story. But what I'd like to emphasize is that in so many other ways that influenced the person who we uh, honor today. Because he also talks about the influence of his father. He doesn't spend as much time with his mother. He says she's behind the scenes taking care of those uh, essential things that you need in, in life. He talks about his grandmother, who he seems to have this special attachment to. She's described as his saintly grandmother, who told him these wonderful stories about the origins of the family. What else does he look at? Well, I think what it does is it allows us to understand the most important decision he makes during the first 20 years of his life. And that is the decision to become a minister. Because what it's, you might assume that because his grandfather is a minister, his father is a minister, well, of course he's going to become a minister. But actually, for those, exactly those reasons, he decided, no, I'm not going to become a minister. That's not what I want to do. Why was that? Well, partly it was just youthful rebelliousness and not, not wanting to follow the lead of parents. But I think it, was, it had a deeper root, and it comes through in the autobiography, and that is his early religious doubts. Now, we're, we're in Ebenezer Church. We were just in the basement of this church where they had Sunday school. What happens in, in Sunday school that shapes him? Well, he begins to learn things in Sunday school. Maybe some of you have the same experience. And when you get, as you get older, you begin to doubt some of those things. In this sanctuary, an incident happens when he was, it says in there about six, I think we've dated it, probably about seven years old when it happens. But there's a religious revival that takes place here. A visiting minister, one of the ways in which uh, ministers built their congregations, they would invite a revivalist to come in, usually some spellbinding person who could just get to the emotions of, of people. And what happens in a service? At a certain point, people are asked to come forward. You just saw that earlier. And testify about accepting Jesus as their savior. Well, what does Martin Luther King experience during that? He, he sees, he's sitting in the church. Just imagine this. He's sitting, he's sitting there. He's the preacher's son. His sister, his older sister comes up. He's sitting there. Okay, do I go up? Do I not go up? And he decides to come forward with her. And later... He says, you know, he felt bad about that. Why? Because he was not doing that out of inner conviction. He was doing that to keep up with his sister. So that becomes one of the shaping things that he talks about in the autobiography that shaped his religious views. Then what happens later? He gets to 
about 13, he says. He's in the basement in the Sunday school class. And he starts to question the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He said, that doesn't sound right. And he questions whether to take that literally or just figuratively. Well, a 13-year-old is not supposed to be doing that. But Martin Luther King starts to question. And he said, these doubts began to come forth unrelentingly once, once he began to question. So, of course, he's not going to make the decision to, to follow his father into the ministry as long as he has these doubts. So the theme of the autobiography is that struggle to overcome these doubts. So in the, in the process of that 14-page document, you can trace the beginnings of his consciousness as, as a religious person because he has to overcome these doubts or else he can't make that decision to become a minister. How does he overcome that? Well, it happens at Morehouse College. He goes to Morehouse College and he takes the only course at Morehouse for which he gets an A. Should give hope to some of you that you can, you can achieve great things without a wonderful GPA. <laughs> uh, but what happens is he takes, that's his only class on religion that he takes at Morehouse. And it's taught by a professor named George Kelsey. I had the privilege of meeting George Kelsey. He uh, was a wonderful, uh, well-educated person who I could see how a young Martin would see him as a role model. Because from his own father, he gets this kind of religion that is kind of what I would call the old-time religion. It's a lot of emotion, but not too much emphasis on, on theology and, and, and reason and things like that. So from George Kelsey, what he gets is that you have to get behind the myths of the Bible. That a lot of these stories, you have to understand what is their deeper meaning. George Kelsey is a well-educated person who had studied the Bible, understood a lot of the historical context, practicing what we would call today historical criticism of the Bible, of seeing it as a historical document, seeing it as something that you could go back and, and question, um, why did they write this the way it, 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 they did? And so what you find from, from that is that here he is, doing this when probably most of us are not really questing the, the way he did. Um, I think that what is really striking is that he's doing this at 13, 14, 15 years old, at a time when most of us kind of accept things without too much deeper thought about them. So he goes through this period of questioning, and he goes to... Kelsey's course, and he teaches him the rudiments of how do you look at the Bible as a historical document, uh, something that he 
really is drawn to. Um, and, and later, actually, when he goes off to theological seminary, he goes where? To Crozier Theological Seminary. And one of the things he finds is that by going to this very liberal, and what I mean by liberal is that within the spectrum of theological seminaries, there are those who kind of teach the Bible as this is the word of God, don't question even a single word of it, to the other extreme of saying that this is something that you could question just like any other historical document. Uh, in fact, one of the things you'll remember from reading Taylor Branch's account, uh, they spend the first year kind of breaking down all the beliefs that you think you had before you start building up those beliefs that can, be, can withstand criticism. So by the time he leaves high school, and of course he enters Morehouse one year early, so he's 15 years old, still a very young person, he gets there and begins to see from Kelsey's class, which he takes um, while he's there, a way of reconciling the admiration he has for his father. That comes through in the autobiography. He admires his father's commitment, his father's commitment to change society, to bring justice, and his father has the basis of the social gospel, but he also has a more fundamentalist view of the Bible. So what young Martin is, wants to do is to take that commitment that he sees in his father and combine it with the erudition, the intellectualism of a George Kelsey and, of course, Benjamin Mays, who is the great influence. So Benjamin Mays and George Kelsey, these are highly educated ministers passionate in their religious belief, but also intellectuals. So I think that what we get from, from understanding the, the importance of being here is that this is, this is where it all happened. I mean, within two blocks of here, the important events of Martin Luther King's life occurred that this is what shaped him into the person that we know. And we can trace that through his own writings, through the writings of Daddy King, from other documents we have from this period. And one of the things that I, is, is um, very much a central part of the papers of Martin Luther King that we've edited is that so many of those papers are religious papers that he had to work things out in terms of his religious beliefs and that that was the fundamental basis of Martin Luther King. So just to conclude, I would say that if we, if we look closely at those papers, what we find is that he is defining his mission as a minister. In one of the early papers that he does at Crozier Theological Seminary, his first year there. He's asked by a professor, what, what are you gonna, what's gonna guide your ministry? 
And he said, I'm going to deal with slums, unemployment, economic insecurity. Civil rights is not on the list. What is he doing 20 years later? This is 1948. What is he doing in 1968? What kinds of issues are, is he dealing with in the Poor People's Campaign? Slums, unemployment, economic insecurity. So what I would suggest to you is that when we look at the Martin Luther King who had his formative experiences right here at Ebenezer and at the home up the street, is that we can see that this is the essential Martin Luther King. This is the inner Martin Luther King. A lot of the other things that we think we know about him are what I would call the external Martin Luther King. Sometimes I even call it the King myth. Because when we look at it from the point of view of the person who emerged from this experience, we see that he was shaped in a way that was not fundamentally changed when he went to Montgomery and Rosa Parks turned a social gospel preacher into a civil rights leader. Now, I think most of us would agree that for the next 10 years, he did a pretty good job as a civil rights leader. I mean, it, all those changes that took place from the Montgomery bus boycott to the passage of the Voting Rights Act 50 years ago, he could have very well said, you know, I, I didn't ask for this job. I was kind of asked to take this job of being a civil rights leader, but I did a pretty good job. Please let me go home and rest. I've kind of accomplished, because the Voting Rights Act is the last major piece of civil rights legislation. But if you see his life in this sweep, uh, the direct line from the experiences that occurred on this block and in this neighborhood to 1968, what you see is that he would reach that crucial time of 1965 and say, my work is not done. That's not my mission. My mission was much deeper than that. And that explains why the person who helped passed the Voting Rights Act, ends up a year later in Chicago, uh, working in one of the poorest areas of Chicago. And later than that, um, launching the Poor People's Campaign and ending up in Memphis. So we're here. And uh, I, th I think that one of the things that would be so good uh, one of the things that's so good about being here is not just simply being in this building, but we also have some of the witnesses, at least one of the great witnesses of Martin Luther King's life, Reverend C.T. Vivian, uh, who is someone who shared that kind of social gospel notion of Christianity and someone who knew Martin Luther King during the main years of his life. So I, I think we're, we're very privileged to be in this wonderful setting and have uh, one of the witnesses, one of the persons whose memory is still very much alive, uh, 
I, I hate to refer to you as an artifact, historical artifact, but uh, we can learn so much. <laughs> so much. Uh, he, yeah, you're not finished yet. You're not finished making history. So thank you so much. And I, I just, just want to open it up for any questions that you might have. This is the place to ask them. Um, please. Um, let's see if we can. Uh, did Dr. King's experiences as a preacher play? Wait, uh, could you? Oh, sorry. Um, did Dr. King's experiences kind of growing up in the church and as being a preacher influence his leadership style in the movement? Okay, the question of what influence did this experience have on his leadership style in the movement? You know, um, there's lots of ways of, of answering that question, but uh, one of the documents that we have is when he takes his first pulpit. You know, here he was under the eye always of, of his father. Sometimes he would come back in the summer and serve as the minister, give his father time to take a vacation, things like that. But um, when he went to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and took um, the pastorship of that church, his father gave him some advice based on his knowledge of how you run a church. Because remember, the Baptist church is, is somewhat unique in the sense that they can hire, but they can also fire a minister, okay? So there is this balance. And so Reverend King, who knew this, told his son, you have to have a firm hand. So we have this document where Martin is talking about, he's giving his, one of his first sermons to the new congregation. And he said that in the church, authority comes from the pulpit to the pew, not from the pew to the pulpit. Why was that? Because the minister represented an understanding of the word of God. And if you don't accept that authority, get another minister. Now, there was that aspect of Martin Luther King where some of the young people in SNCC or someone like a Ella Baker didn't, didn't really get along that well with that, that idea of in the civil rights world, authority comes from the pulpit to the pews. There was that sense in a group like SNCC of, well, we're a grassroots organization, and some of that authority has to come from the grassroots up to the leaders. Uh, so that, that was a tension, and it, and it, but it did really affect the way in which he viewed his role in the movement. Yes. Um, at what point in your life did you decide that, I guess, studying MLK and his legacy was the right path for you? Uh, the question had to do with uh, at what point in my life. Um, in, in some ways, I, I think I was almost destined to do it in the sense that when I look back, everything seems to fit. You know, I was at the March on Washington. Um, uh, I met... 
Mrs. King, when I was doing research on my book on SNCC, uh, John Hope Franklin, the great historian of his time, um, recommended me to her. But having said all that, uh, there's, there's just the serendipity of I was, because uh, at, at that time, I really believed more in the SNCC view of bottom up. One of the things about my first book, uh, In Struggle, is that it is a story of the movement from the grassroots up. It's not from King's perspective. So, so that, was, that was my thrust. So I, I've always wondered why she entrusted me with that, with that mission, because she knew that. She knew that, that I had written a, a book of, and I'm, I, I suspect that she had, she had read it. Um, but I think she understood that even though I came to it with that perspective, I would come with a sympathy for the movement, but also I would learn over time. Uh, I remember the first paper I gave about, you know, after becoming editor of, of Martin Luther King's paper. It was at a conference at the Capitol. And on Martin Luther King, it was, it was one of the first conferences after the national holiday. So I'm invited to give this, you know, very public speech. It's now in, you know, all the, all the um, papers given at the conference were, were uh, published. And who's in the front row? Mrs. King, but also Bob Moses, the, the, the main organizer from SNCC. So here I am, I'm the SNCC person, but I'm giving a talk now as editor of Martin Luther King's papers. Uh, so I gave this talk, and the conclusion of it was that the movement would have happened even if Martin Luther King had not been born. And I firmly believe that. I looked out, and here's, Mart here's Coretta Scott King. She's kind of frowning. <laughs> and I'm kind of thinking, yeah, maybe I'm not going to be lasting long in this, in this job. <laughs> but what that did is it, it forced me to also rethink my own attitudes. Because every time I applied for a grant to do the King Papers, I had to say, why is this important? Why is it important if the movement would have happened if, even if King had never been born? Why is it important? What did King provide to the movement? So one way of understanding the last 30 years of my life is answering that question. I have to answer that question every day, every year, and each year my, I hope my answer becomes more sophisticated that I understand that there was something essential. And what I think was essential was that he was a visionary. That there were a lot of people who were good at mobilizing people. There were organizers. There were, there were people like Bob Moses who were essential to the movement. And there were people who were, um, you know, even, even in Montgomery, is Joanne Robinson less important in terms of mobilizing that than, than Martin Luther King? I think she's more important. I think that the Montgomery bus boycott 
Martin Luther King didn't become the leader of it until the afternoon of the first day of the boycott, which was 100% successful, just about. How did that happen? How did you have a successful boycott without Martin Luther King? Because he doesn't, he is selected to lead. Isn't it wonderful as a leader that someone says, we've already got a successful movement going. We just want you to keep it going. We want to make it to the second day, the third day. So on the one hand, it kind of fits my view, this bottom-up view of, of movement. But if you ask yourself, you get to the 200th day of the boycott, and things aren't changing, who is going to provide the inspiration about what are the visionary goals? Because if you think about it, most movements don't make sense. How can you have, you know, like a strike or any, any kind of movement, a boycott, you're, you put yourself through suffering. 381 days of people, some of them having to walk to work, some of them having to, you know, find ways of, of getting there. And these are maids. These are people who, they, they can't just say, okay, I'm going to drive to work today. So from, the point, from that point of view, you could look at it and say, rationally, by that 200th day, they're saying, they might say, maybe I should ride on the bus. It's better, at least I get a ride, and it's raining outside, it's cold. And that makes perfect sense. But what if you're listening to the Montgomery Improvement Association rallies that night, and Martin Luther King is saying, no, this is not about getting a better seat on the bus. This is about something that's going to affect your sense of dignity as a person. This is something that is about the Sermon on the Mount. This is something about the Declaration of Independence. In other words, this is about certain kinds of transcendent values that even when you have to walk to work in the rain, you don't want to go back and sit on that bus. And so I, I think that that's kind of the way I would balance it now, of, of understanding that each of them had their roles. It was a complex movement, and lots of different people were in it who played perhaps the most important role they would play during their lifetime because that, that's what makes a great movement. And Martin Luther King played his role, and that's what led him to be the great leader that we know. So maybe one final question. Okay. You mentioned to us before um, in class that Martin Luther King believed that communism did what Christianity ought to do. Um, is there any indication that he continued to hold that belief sort of throughout his later years? Or Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, the, the question about whether that sermon that Martin Luther King's Christianity, um, communism's challenge to Christianity, 
he gives that before the Montgomery bus boycott, he, you know, way back in the, uh, CT, were you, did you even, were familiar with that? I knew of it, I read it. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I talk about it, because uh, you are in a situation where we're in a capitalistic country, right? Yeah. Uh, but you, and we have to find where one starts and, and, uh, and this is why the religion works so well with it, right? Because we're talking about uh, who, where are your values? Are they really from, from, the, from the politics of your nation? Or are they from the deeper spirit of your nation, yeah. right? Uh, and uh, 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 so the ministry works perfectly here uh, because the two are tied together there. Uh, and uh, you can have one without the other, but you can't, uh, uh, but it takes both of them to uh, keep uh, a capitalistic country going. Well, one, one of the things I would also just add to um, Reverend Vivian's um, statement is that part of the, the idea that King had about the social gospel is he said that at one point in his life, he says, I didn't need to read Karl Marx to know that we should care about the poor and do justice to those who are less fortunate. That, that's, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount, that any Christian should know that. And so part of what he was trying to get across was that if Christianity, if Christians understood the message that goes back even before Jesus, back to uh, Amos, Isaiah, the, the great prophets, what, what was the message that they were bringing to the Jewish people? What, the message was that you have an obligation, a religious obligation, to do this. And God demands it of you. And if you fail in that demand, that, that is going to bring bad things to the Jewish people. Well, Maybe by looking at it in that perspective, Martin Luther King would conclude that communism answers the right question, but with the wrong answer. That the right question is, how do we build a just society? But what it, the difference would be that a communist would say, by any means necessary, you know, that uh, the means justify the ends justify the means. And, and he is saying that the means that you use to get to that end, that determines what you get in the end. If you use force to get to the end, you have to maintain yourself by using force. Because whoever is on the other side is not going to suddenly give up so you have people who are going to be trying to overturn the revolution. You have the counter-revolution. Then you have maybe another revolution, and, and the cycle of violence just goes on. So his view was the only way you overcome that cycle is to understand that the means have to be humane, have to be consistent with your moral principles, and in that way, you build the possibility of a reconciled society, what he would call the beloved community. That 
that you would have a society. And, and he would point to the, the differences between, say, countries that achieved their independence nonviolently, predominantly, and those who had to go through revolutionary violence. And he said, look, look at the end result that you don't find in India today Indians still fighting over the same things that they were fighting over 100 years ago. That they, they can be, they can understand, they can become reconciled with their for, former colonizers. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting kind of way of looking at, at things. And I think that he understood. Now, one of the things about that sermon is that I've looked at that sermon very carefully and a lot of the basic ideas come from a sermon that his father gave more than a decade earlier. And that he, he gives this sermon in 1953, but he also gives a very similar sermon in 1963. So you have 20 years from his father to the son where they're basically making the very same argument, and, and that's not that surprising because they go back to the same biblical sources, the, the prophets. And they basically say that this is the, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I think becomes clear after reading Martin Luther King is that it helps us to understand a lot of the current debates that are going on about the world of religion, where there's a lot of emphasis on whether Leviticus has, you know, these passages against uh, um, you know, homosexuality, uh, you know, all of these, these sorts of things that are part of the Bible. And people have to decide, okay, well, what am I going to emphasize as the essential teachings of my religion? But if you just do a search on doing justice to the poor, um, the idea that that is an essential characteristic of any Christian. You find that there's hundreds of mentions. It's probably, it certainly is the most commonly mentioned theme. And yet, what happens in some churches? You focus on the one passage and you miss the hundred other mentions of doing justice to those less fortunate. So what do, you, what do you take as the basic message that you should come? So I think, so Martin Luther King, he would come to it with that notion that first of all, religion is about changing the world as well as changing the soul. He talked about that in terms of the dual mission of Christianity. That some ministers say, doesn't matter what, happening in the, that world, all that you should be concerned about is your soul. And then there are others who would say, you've got to deal with both. Why? Because he says in one of these early papers, it's a dual process. You have to be concerned about the soul as well as the society in which the soul exists. And unless you're concerned about both sides of that equation, you can't really service the needs of your congregation. That's it.
Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.